0: Here we are, Rick Durfee and Michael Coberline with Durfee Law Group, Probate Law Group, and Estate Planning Law Group, uh, different w- windows to come to the same service. And we're here today to talk about estate planning and retirement planning. And this is a timely topic with our epic intro there. I love that intro music. Uh, appreciate the producers helping us put that together. Very nice. Uh, we're excited to talk about this uh, idea today. For for a whole lot of reasons, often uh, when people sit down to look at their uh, estate plan, what what do we do for our assets and providing for our children? More often than not, one of their biggest assets it are their retirement accounts, their IRAs and their other other retirement accounts. And so, understanding how those work, how they work over time, uh, what your options are, what your choices are, how you can structure things to optimize your benefit is is really important and powerful and something that not only do planners need so the financial planners and the estate planners and and their professional advisors advise people but everybody needs to know this because virtually everybody is dealing with this kind of uh, planning tool in one way or another and so we're going to run through several of these things i'm candidly not sure if this how long this is going to take so we're going to go until we're done with the material and then we're going to shut up uh, when, when we don't have anything uh, more to say on this topic. And I want to begin with well, when when, and how much do we put into our retirement accounts? How much should we put into our IRAs, to our 401Ks, to our 403Bs, if, we're, if we have that kind of option, or, or our other retirement plans? And and the answer to that question is different than what a lot of people think. and it, And it really kind of depends on who you are and where you are getting the money from to fund those accounts and what your long-term plans are. So let's walk through a couple of scenarios. If you are an employee and your uh, source of funds comes from getting compensated for the work you do, and especially if your employer is going to match your contributions, then you should put as much as you possibly can in your retirement plans as early as you can and take all of the matching contributions you sh- you should can get. And that's almost a no-brainer. Getting those matching contributions is like free money. And those retirement plans, there are a lot of incentives, financial incentives for employers to offer those to their employees, and, and it's a good deal. So take them. Now, if on the other end of the spectrum, If you're the business owner, you own the business and it's it's your company and you have a lot of employees, funding a retirement plan may be a good idea, but it may not. And this kind of ties to what your overall plan is. And let me kind of come into this from the back door Uh, one of the things we encounter a lot in doing financial or estate planning for people that are approaching retirement, that are the entrepreneur the business owner is we'll often encounter people that have what I call overfunded retirement accounts and they're facing retirement and, and we're doing some estate planning. And their question is, well, what, what should I do with this? I don't need it to pay for my retirement. I have other sources of income. I have other assets. My home is paid for and on and on and on. So so they're looking at this big, fat retirement account. And the question is, what do do I do with it? And and we're going to talk about some of those options. But with that in mind, how do we get to that place? And and let's identify specifically a significant aspect of retirement accounts in general. Uh, The most common one being an IRA. The IRA. An IRA stands for individual then in our retirement account. So surprisingly enough, for most people, the most tax efficient thing you can do with an IRA is pay for the retirement of an individual, the owner. And you can extend that to include the owner's spouse. That's the most tax efficient thing you can do with that IRA. There's other things you can do with it but the tax efficiency is going to go down if you try to use it for some of those other purposes. So if you are going to, if you have a plan for, and you know you are going to need the assets in your retirement account or in a retirement account when you retire, when you sell your business or your professional practice or whatever, then yeah, put as much money as you possibly can in that account. But sometimes, for the high net worth, high income professional or entrepreneur that owns a professional practice or a business, that can be a tax ambush. And kind of let me, let me walk you through how this works. The idea of a retirement account is we're going to put money into the retirement account during our income earning years when presumably we're at a high tax bracket. And then after we retire and our income goes down because we're no longer employed and we're at a lower tax bracket, then we're gonna draw out that retirement income and we're gonna live on those withdrawals from our retirement account during those retirement years. Well, what happens if, because of selling a a practice or a business or or building other uh, types of uh, cash flow producing, revenue producing investments, what's gonna happen if when we retire, quote unquote, our income doesn't go down; it either stays the same or, in some cases, goes up. Well, if your income is going to go up over your lifetime and continue to go up even after you even after you stop working at whatever you do, then having money in a retirement account isn't going to benefit you. In fact, you're going to be thinking once again, "I don't need this. I I I don't need it for my retirement. My retirement's paid for in other ways. So I'm going to try and leave this to my children." And then again, it becomes very tax. Inefficient. So, when do you fund it? You got to look at your own life and what's going on. Once again, kind of the simple uh, explanation or rule of thumb is if you're an employee and you have matching contributions from your employer, take all you can get. If you're the business owner, then you need to do a plan and look long term at what's going to happen and ask yourself, am I really going to need this? are there some other things we can do? And I, to help reinforce this, I want you to think about what is it that's attractive about retirement accounts? And the big thing that's attractive, frankly, is is the tax attributes. And most retirement accounts, and we'll put uh, Roth IRAs in a separate category, but most retirement accounts are not, as some people think, tax-free. They are Tax deferred. There's going to be a tax on it, but the tax doesn't happen today. Uh, the tax is going to happen in the future. And and here's the sucker punch, the the, the politician's sucker punch. Uh, we put money in it today, and we get a tax deduction today. Yippee yay! But once again, we take if we take the tax deduction today, only to then realize that income in the future when our tax bracket is higher and the tax rates are higher. We have not done ourselves a favor, we've hurt ourselves. So uh, it's important to understand that retirement accounts for the most part are tax deferred. And there's other things you can do to defer taxes. Uh, And I'll I'll name a few, uh, although there are many, Uh, buy and hold type of investments. And this can be rental properties, it can be stocks and bonds it could be things that you're you're going to buy and you're going to hold on to it you're not going to sell it so you're not going to have a tax realization event and you're going to it's going to grow in value over time and that growth in value is is tax deferred it's not taxable until you have that realization event when you sell or otherwise dispose of the asset so retirement accounts are not the only device available for tax deferral particularly again if you're the entrepreneur if you're the, or the business owner the professional so sometimes some of those alternative tax deferral mechanisms can actually be more effective and more powerful. We're going to talk about one in particular as we go through this. So there's, so there's a big, huge tax deferral or even tax uh, avoidance device that we're going to talk about. But let's say, okay, you got this retirement account. And what's the most tax-efficient thing you can do with that retirement account? And the answer to that question is, withdraw the funds during your retirement years and get them all out before you die. And that's really hard for people to do for several reasons. We don't know when we're going to die, or at least we hope not. In fact, anytime somebody finds out when they're going to die, it's a terrible thing. They don't want to know that. No, don't tell me I'm going to die. We want it to be a secret and we want to be surprised by it. But, But if we can, tax wise here, that the most tax efficient thing we can do with our retirement accounts is withdraw the funds while we're alive. But if, we, if we're not gonna do it, we just can't do it. We can't bring ourselves to do it. We think there's gonna be something left in them when we're dead. Who do we name as beneficiaries? And this is a huge thing. And uh, we're gonna go through some basic rules and I'm gonna try not to get too technical. Uh, I, I don't want this to be boring. Uh, But let's talk about some of the basic rules in in, uh, naming beneficiaries for our retirement accounts. Rule number one, who do we name first? Every time, with rare and very few exceptions, we name our spouse. So if you're married, you name your spouse. If you're not married, that's a different situation. We'll talk about that in a second. If you're married, you name your spouse. And why do you name your spouse? You name your spouse because a spouse... Can roll over that retirement account, and then it's treated as if, for tax purposes, as if it belongs to that spouse. So the spouse continue gets to continue to enjoy the tax deferral benefits. Can continue to take withdrawals, and there's some rules that kick in if you're if there's a big gap in your age. But for the most part, every time, name your spouse. Your spouse can roll it over, and most IRA custodians, by the way, they will allow you two beneficiaries your spouse, and something. So what should the something be? If you have done no estate planning whatsoever, name whoever's next in your life. For most people, that's going to be their children. Uh, if you don't have children, you can name some charitable beneficiaries, and we'll talk about that again in, in a little more detail here. But you name your spouse number one, and then number two, you name whoever's next, your, your children typically. And if you, if you don't have children, again, you can your grandchildren or your best friend or your live-in companion or wh- whoever it is that you, you want to take care of, you can name as an individual. If, on the other hand, you've actually done some estate planning and presumably if you have a trust and if the trust has adequate provisions to deal with what we're about to talk about, you can name the trust. You can name a trust as the beneficiary of a retirement account. And there's some new rules that have kicked in recently that change what we do with the trust and how we do it and why. And uh, and we're going to talk about that. There's something called the SECURE Act, which is one of those political acronyms that suggests uh, uh, it's uh, double speak. It suggested that this is securing something when, well, really, it's, it's a camouflaged tax hike. But under the SECURE Act, a couple of things changed. And uh, this is a good spot to talk about that. Uh, It used to be that a beneficiary of an IRA or a retirement account, I'm just going to say IRA and I mean all all retirement accounts of of any kind, but but we'll use IRA generically to refer to all of them. It used to be that uh, the beneficiary of an IRA could do what we called stretch the required minimum distributions as most people know, or if they don't know, you're about to find out, there comes a point in your life where you, you are compelled to take money out of your IRA. Now, why is that? And, and I'm gonna tell you there's two reasons. The publicly stated policy reason is, well, these funds are for your retirement and we want you to take them out during your retirement so you, you can help yourself in your retirement. That's reason number one. Reason number two is by compelling you to take money out of your retirement accounts, what happens? They're compelling you to realize a taxable event, and they're going to collect a tax from you. So uh, w- while on the one hand, it is, yes, to help uh, take care of retirement, it also has the added political benefit for people in political power who who uh, sustain their power by having tax revenue, uh, they generate tax revenue. And in fact, you can, the uh, politicians can look uh, forward and forecast their budgets and balance quote-unquote, if they ever do balance. They can at least plan on what they're going to spend based upon uh, the expected uh, taxes that are going to result from compelled required distributions from these retirement accounts. And it used to be prior to the SECURE Act that the age at which that triggered was 70 and a half. They'd thrown us a break. They gave us 18 extra months to accumulate funds in our retirement accounts. So now the age at which required minimum distributions kick in is 72 and it used to be with an inherited IRA that the beneficiaries of that IRA could take those required minimum distributions based on their birthday, and presumably your, your children are going to be younger than you. That's normally how it works out in, in biology, and because they're younger than you, their required minimum distributions are going to be smaller than yours, so that IRA could theoretically, last over the term of your children's life, and they get to enjoy the deferral of those tax benefits and take the money out slowly over time. That has gone away completely. And there were millions of people who based their retirement planning and their estate planning on that rule who are now surprised and shocked to learn that uh, this no longer works. And does it matter what kind of IRA you have? Yes, it does, and we're talking about traditional IRAs, traditional retirement plans now. Uh, we're gonna, Roth IRAs work a little differently, we're gonna talk about this. But here's here's what happened with the SECURE Act. Instead of allowing beneficiaries to stretch the IRA out over their lifetime, now uh, non-spousal beneficiaries are compelled to take all the funds out of the IRA within 10 years. And there's certain exceptions to that, which we're not going to worry about today, Uh, but for the most part, you just got to think through 10 years and you're taking it all out of the IRA. So the stretch is gone. Having said that, well then what should we do with our retirement accounts? Who should we name as beneficiaries? And there's a a little nuance here, a little ugly uh, factoid about non-spousal beneficiary inherited IRAs that a lot of people are unaware of, and this is it. If you have a traditional IRA, if you have any kind of an IRA, a Roth IRA, and you're the owner under uh, the laws that govern these retirement accounts, your creditors cannot take that IRA away from you. It has some very robust asset protection built in. It's statutory, it comes from Congress. Congress says no. Uh, if we allow creditors to take retirement plans away from people that puts a burden on the state because then those people are destitute and become dependent upon government benefits. So we're not going to let creditors take that money that's protected from creditors. Well, that protection goes away for a non-spousal beneficiary. So your children, if your children are personally directly the beneficiaries of your IRA after your spouse, you and your spouse are both gone. Now, the children are the beneficiaries beneficiaries of the IRA. Their creditors can penetrate the IRA and take the money. So let's think through, what does that mean? What does that mean? So let's just use an example. Let's just, we'll keep the number actually small in today's number. $100,000 IRA, and you have one child, and, and both mommy and daddy are dead, and this, and this one child inherited this $100,000 IRA, and... That there's a judgment uh, against this uh, beneficiary. The judgment creditor can go and grab that hundred thousand dollars and take it, all of it. And now, who has the money? The creditor. Now there's good news. the The creditor got paid and and uh, and that no doubt satisfied some legal obligation of the beneficiary. Here's the bad news. When the creditor takes that hundred thousand dollars out of the IRA, and the creditor gets to keep the $100,000. That's not income to the creditor. That's satisfying the creditor's obligation. Who is that income for? And the answer is the beneficiary. So the beneficiary is going to get a K-1 for $100,000 of income that the beneficiary never got the money for. The money went to pay the debt. So the beneficiary now is going to have to pay the tax bill on that $100,000. So if, if we have the typical stuff that happens in the lives of beneficiaries, divorce, uh, bankruptcy, car accidents, medical issues, substance abuse, uh, all, all the nasty things that can happen, uh, that beneficiary's uh, creditors, the, the risks that they have in the life are uh, able to grab the money out of the IRA and the beneficiary gets, yeah, that phantom income income for which you have to pay taxes, which you didn't actually get. So to protect against that, it's a pretty typical planning device to name as beneficiary after the spouse, to name the beneficiary as a trust. So what's the beneficiary? A trust. And for this to work, the trust has to have certain kinds of provisions in it, and there's There's two well-known options and a third option that is is less well-known but we're going to talk through here on naming a trust as a beneficiary. The two best-known options are what's called a conduit trust or an accumulation trust. And those names suggest the meaning. So if you think about it, it's pretty obvious you can figure it out, I think. The conduit, a conduit, as you know, is a pipe. It's a pipe through which wires run or water runs. It's a pipe. And so the conduit trust, the IRA would pay to the trust and would flow through the trust like a pipe right directly to the beneficiaries. So the beneficiaries get it uh, right away. And the beneficiaries then pick up uh, the tax attributes. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is uh, we don't have that asset protection thing. So the other option is an accumulation trust. What does that mean? It means the IRA distributions come out of the IRA and they go to the trust and they stay in the trust. So now we are protected from the creditors of the beneficiary. uh, But there's a downside. Now, uh, potentially, we could incur income and have to pay the taxes at the trust rate which is generally going to get to a high tax bracket faster. There's a shorter curve on on coming up the the tax curve uh, to get to the highest rate. So that could hypothetically trigger higher taxes. The conduit trust has all but, uh, although that was extremely popular for a long, long time, has for the most part in the literature, if you read what goes around among lawyers and estate planners, uh, the, the conduit trust is kind of, dead in the water and uh, maybe it always should have been. So the accumulation trust is, is far more uh, touted as a, as a tool to use. And there are several conditions that we have to uh, comply with to make the accumulation trust work. But here's, I wanna focus on uh, a couple of attributes so that you can think through this as you're, as you're thinking through your own planning or advising someone else that might need this planning. One of the benefits of the accumulation trust is the IRA distribution comes into the trust and the trust is gonna hold the money. And if the trust is properly designed, the trust can shield those IRA distributions from the creditors and liabilities and life uh, disasters that might happen for the beneficiary. Now, having, having said that, I, I wanna tell you, we, I review hundreds of trusts every year, speak nationally in a, in a lot of places and people bring their trust to me and say, hey. Well, you look at this and tell us what you think. And so often people think they've been told, in fact, that their trust is going to protect their assets when they're dead. And it doesn't. And, and I'll, I'll tell you one of the classic ways that that protection gets clobbered. The vast majority of trusts that we encounter out there have what I call age-based mandatory distributions. And the thinking is, well, if, when my kids are young, if they get all the money when they're young, they might blow it. So let's not do that, let's make them wait. And we're gonna give it to them when they have a birthday. And so when they turn 30 or 35 or 40 or 45, whatever the age, and sometimes it's incremental a little bit at this age, have another birthday, have, get a little more, have another birthday, get a little more. Couple of problems with that. If the, if the distributions come out automatically, then what happens to the asset protection of the trust? And the answer is, it goes away, it's gone. That's like if I take cash out of the bank and I carry it around in my pocket, how much protection does the bank give me when I get mugged in the park late at night? And the answer is zero. You don't get any. So uh, you want the protection of a bank, leave your money in the bank. So if we want the trust to protect the assets one way or another, the assets have to stay in the trust. If they come out of the trust, they lose that. So distributions under the trust have to be discretionary, not mandatory. Uh, the trust has to have spendthrift provisions. And here's, uh, you yeah, know, we've talked about the conduit trust that flows out directly to the beneficiary, the accumulation trust that, that stops the distributions in the trust and piles them up in the trust. And here's two nuances that we often don't see. One nuance is even with an accumulation trust, with careful planning, there are provisions that can be accumulated included in the trust so that even if the cash stays in the trust the income flows out to the beneficiaries now this is something that for whatever reason is is uh, not intuitive people don't generally understand it although cpas and and a few lawyers go oh yeah that makes sense most people don't understand the meaning of the word income they think income means I got money and that's not what the word income means. Income means I incurred a tax liability because as we've just discussed for example with the IRA uh, where the credit with a non-spousal beneficiary and that beneficiary's creditors come and grab the money out of the IRA The beneficiary didn't get any of the cash, but the beneficiary did get income. They incurred a tax liability. So you can have income where you're responsible to pay the taxes, but the cash can go somewhere else. And a a carefully crafted trust can do that in a manner that's favorable to the beneficiary. So the beneficiary picks up the income and pays the taxes And the trust can even advance the money or pay the taxes on behalf of the beneficiary, but keep the non-taxed part of that income in the trust where it's protected. So again, a well-crafted trust can be an accumulation trust, but we can avoid the adverse tax consequences if it's appropriately structured. Here's the other nuance that I guess the third option with this conduit trust versus accumulation trust that... Uh, is not well uh, talked about and not considered. And that is you can have both. You can have it be one and then based upon certain triggers, it converts to the other. So you can have it be a conduit trust and it flows through the beneficiaries and tell the beneficiaries or unless the beneficiaries have some kind of that disaster in their life where if they got the money, it's going to be taken away from them. So now we're going to flip the switch and convert it to an accumulation trust. And we're not going to flow it out to you because if you get it, you're not going to get to keep it. Somebody's going to grab it and steal it from you. So we're going to accumulate the funds inside the trust or vice versa. We have been accumulating these funds in the trust because of whatever life situation was going on in the life of the beneficiary. Now we're going to pull the switch and let the money flow out. and. Typically, that can be a hard switch where it's, okay, this specific event, if this occurs, then the switch it gets pulled. But it can also be, again, with a carefully crafted trust, something that is done in the discretion of an independent trustee. So those
1: Rick, tools- have you seen whether the, the SECURE Act has restricted uh, the beneficiaries of a conduit trust or a, an accumulation trust? I didn't understand the question. Say, what do you mean? Have Have you, have you heard or seen whether the uh, secure act restricts uh, the, the beneficiaries of a conduit trust or accumulation trust? In other words, if you have an accumulation trust, uh, are those who can reap the benefits only certain beneficiaries or uh, is it kind of the same as it was before? Uh, the the answer is yes, I think. <laughs> Both not well, sorry what I, what I heard is that, it, that it's been restricted to people who have uh, chronic illness or disability that those are the only ones who are able to take advantage of accumulation trusts under the Secure Act.
0: I, I would say that is correct with a an accumulation trust, that causes the income to be taxed to the trust. But this hybrid pseudo-accumulation trust, which allows the income to flow to the beneficiary, but in fact keeps the cash flow in the trust, I think would still qualify. The beneficiaries of a trust, for it to qualify as a beneficiary of an IRA has to be a a qualified beneficiary. And there's a variety of rules that go along with that. Uh, And that can be uh, a natural person, it can be, Uh, A charity in some instances. Uh, So we do have to meet those rules uh, with the trust. But an accumulation trust can be a qualified beneficiary, and it can, if appropriately structured, uh, protect the assets in the trust from uh, the creditors of the beneficiary. And I I will tell you that I favor the uh, convertible you, you, you have both provisions, both the conduit and the accumulation provision, and you can adjust which one you employ based upon the facts and the circumstances in existence at the time. Sometimes it's worth the tax penalty incur the tax penalty because we protect the money from being grabbed by some adverse third party that we don't want to get the money. Sometimes, uh, the tax, uh, penalties are severe enough, we go, yeah, we'll take our chances, uh, distribute the money out of the trust. So I I like to give uh, trustees uh, discretion and uh, provide them with the tools. And this kind of, you know, in my opinion, in a well-crafted trust, uh, often there are things that are going to happen in the future that we can't predict. We don't know if it's going to be this or that, or some something else we haven't even imagined yet. So the most effective thing we can do, instead of trying to guess uh, what's going to be right, is to give the future parties, the future trustees and beneficiaries tools so that uh, they can employ whichever tool makes sense. Now, so a question that just popped up, who makes these laws and how do we get them to change them? Um, and well, and this is an important thing to, to consider. And I'm, I'm going to say something, that uh people often don't understand and and when they do understand it then they really don't like it but here's the deal the people who make the rules can change the rules and they will so who makes these rules who makes the rules of iras the rules are made by politicians by congress so it's the people that you vote for and elect Uh, and and so Whatever your politics are, and I'm not going to tell anybody one side or the other, but look at the tax consequences of the politicians you support and consider them and factor that into your decision as a citizen to exercise your right to vote. Who we elect and the policies of the people we elect have, have consequences. So it is prudent and appropriate for us all to carefully consider that. And that should be one of the factors that we look at. What is is their position on on taxing? And this is something, by the way, long before the SECURE Act, I I have been telling, I've been saying, look, the people who make the rules can change the rules. What's the probability that the politicians are going to change the rules in the future? What's what's the probability of that? And the answer is 100%. They're going to change the rules. When they change the rules, not if, when they change the rules, what's the probability that the new rules are going to be more in your favor and less in favor of the politicians? What do you think? Slim to none. Uh, and, and I think this is independent of the party. It's just the people in power, whoever they are, doesn't matter, are more likely to to implement rules that help them sustain power than they are to give up their power. And I think that's independent of whatever party. I think all applicable parties are, are uh, uh, prone to uh, want to perpetuate their own power and not give it up. And, and we see that in, in tax policy. So are, are taxes going up or down? What do you think? Historically, from the beginning of our nation until today, have taxes gone up or down? Uh, so where are they going to go in the future? where are they going to go uh, in this election cycle or in the next election cycle four years from now, up or down. Uh, That's something that it's appropriate for us to think through and look at uh, uh, what's going to happen. Let me, I will tell you a story. This is a true story. Some years ago, this was actually, actually a couple of decades ago, that kind of tells you how long I've been doing this. Uh, I was in a conference with uh, There's probably two or three hundred lawyers and CPAs that were that do what I do, the, the same thing. And we were listening to an economist speak. And uh, this economist was speaking about uh, fiscal policy and federal spending and, and budgeting and so forth. And and the economist made what everyone thought was a rather shocking statement. He said he, he was absolutely not concerned at all about the, the federal uh, deficit. And, and, and when questioned on that, the reason he gave was that it's fictional. It doesn't really exist. There is no, there is no federal debt, and when, that which sounded absurd. And when pressed further, this is what he said. He said, look, there's and he had the numbers. I don't have the numbers off the top, top of my head. But he said, there's this many trillion dollars in all these retirement accounts. And the money's there. We know it's there. We, 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 we track it. We keep track of that. As economists, that's what economists do. And here's what we know. Somewhere between 40 and 65% of those funds, in fact, belong to the federal government. It's the federal government's money. It's not the taxpayer's money. And the clever thing about how they've set this up is that the taxpayers actually believe it's their money. So they do their best to grow it and and make it bigger, uh, which means they're growing that money for the benefit of the federal government. And sooner or later, the federal government's going to come and take it. And that money more than offsets all all the federal debt. Now, that was decades ago. I don't know if that math still works. I don't know if uh, that economist or any other economist would take the same position. But if you think about it, money in your retirement account, in your IRA, especially traditional IRAs, is pre-tax. It has not been taxed yet. So it's going to be taxed which means the, the government is going to take some of it. So the politicians in thinking through this, they, they regard those retirement accounts as partly theirs. They can take them when they want to. And we have seen politicians of various uh, political affiliations, more than one, have floated the idea that there should be a cap on how much you're allowed to have in your, in your retirement accounts. And that if you uh, get more than so much in your retirement accounts, the government should be entitled to come and take that and levy an excise tax. Uh, That that idea has been seriously floated. There's actually been uh, proposed legislation, and it has not succeeded. That law has not passed. But you have to ask yourself, are the politicians able to uh, pass a law that would put a cap on you can only have X, whatever a million, two million, three million, 20 million, some number that that's the maximum you can have in an IRA or a retirement account. Or if you have more than that, we're going to levy a tax of 100%. We're going to come take it because obviously you don't need that much. In fact, if you have that much, you must have stolen it from somebody. So we are under no uh, moral uh, adverse judgment if we come steal it from you. So I know a lot of politicians think that way. Uh, I, somebody's asking the question, how can the average person uh, know in advance that these kind of laws are being passed? And I guess my response to that is pay attention, follow the news, look at, look at what's, what's being proposed out there, and pay attention to who you're electing. I I am, I am appalled that people make decisions on who to vote for that are not based upon the policies and and the uh, policy positions of the people running for office. They make it on, I don't know, on how they cut their hair or, or uh, how good-looking their spouse is or, or whether I, a famous person endorses them or something like that. I think on all sides of the political spectrum and all political activities, uh, responsible human beings are going to take this seriously and they're going to look at what are the issues, what are the policies, what do the different parties advocate? What do they not advocate? And vote for people that do what you like, uh, not just who might look good or sound good, but who are actually going to do things that that you are in favor of and not do things that you're opposed to. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I want to point out uh, something else. There's this something called a Roth IRA. And these are actually, they're pretty cool. Uh, and. A Roth IRA is kind of the inverse of a traditional IRA. With a traditional IRA you put in pre-tax dollars so you get a deduction on the way in and then it grows tax deferred and you pay the tax on the back end when you take it out. So tax deduction on the way in, taxable event on the way out. A Roth you do the opposite. You're going to pay a tax on the way in. You're going to put in after-tax dollars and then with the Roth, it truly grows, not tax-deferred, tax-free. And uh, when you are reach a certain age, you are allowed to withdraw that money tax-free and it can come out tax-free. Now, another thing, uh, yeah, people like tax-free. Yeah, everybody likes tax-free, but it really is not tax-free, it's after-tax dollars because You pay a tax on the way in. Now, why why would politicians favor this? Politicians favor this because the tax event is realized now, while this politician is in power, not 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, when this politician is long since retired and some other politician is in power. So politicians like this because it generates tax revenue today, and we can spend it at the government level now. So... That's attractive to politicians. Uh, There's also been talk, very serious talk, about capping how much can be in uh, a Roth IRA or how much can actually be tax-free. Again, let me emphasize, this legislation has not passed, but there has been talk and proposed legislation that would cap the tax-free part and say, well, you can be tax-free up to X. And anything above X, it's ours. We're going to come take it. And so you got to ask yourself again, as as you exercise your uh, rights and responsibilities as a voter, uh, do the politicians you're voting for, are they going to do something you like? Are they going to do something you don't like? Uh, So this Roth IRA, you put in after tax dollars, it grows tax-free when it comes out. It's not taxed, tax-free. That's really cool. Uh, Once again, should I, Take that money out while I'm alive or should I leave it to my kids? Of all the IRAs to leave to your kids, if you're going to do that, a Roth IRA is probably the best. It's, it's certainly going to be more tax efficient than a traditional IRA. It's still going to be subject to those 10-year rules. They're still going to have to take them out over time. Still going to have the creditor issues where a creditor could come in and grab that grab that IRA and take it from your child so that they don't get it anymore. Uh, the creditor will have it. No, Your child will just get Uh, whatever the tax consequences are that flow from that. But I I wanna segue into my next section by once again affirming that people who make the rules can change the rules. And interestingly enough, if you look in the legislative history, Roth IRAs were implemented to compete with the private sector. There are alternatives to Roth IRAs uh, that are private, and contractual that are at least as good, and some would argue even better. And uh, let me kind of uh, spell this out. Uh, there is a device. In fact, imagine that there's this black box, and we're gonna we're gonna pour a pitcher. We're gonna pour into this black box. We're gonna pour after tax dollars in. And what we get in this black box is tax free growth. We can draw out tax-free funds during our retirement. When we die, a big chunk of change is going to go to our designated beneficiaries tax-free. And what's really cool is this is not a government plan. It's not a plan where the politicians made the rules so the politicians can change the rules. No, it's a private plan where private parties have contracted so it is subject to the, to the rules of the private contract, but it's not a situation where arbitrarily, uh, based upon the outcome of an election, new politicians can come into play and they say, yeah, we don't like those old rules. We're going to give you some new rules. And by the way, that money you have over there that you thought was yours, it's not yours. It's ours and we're going to come take it. Uh, so this is a private contractual alternative. And, and I'm just going to be blunt and tell you what it is because some people freak out. When you describe the black box, they go, "Yeah, I love that black box. I love that black box." And then you name it, and they don't like it. So let me tell you what the black box is. You ready? Want to know? Because I'm not gonna tell you if you don't want to know. I'm gonna assume you want to know. Here's the black box: low death benefit, high cash value life insurance. Now I want to be. I want to be clear. As a lawyer, I don't sell life insurance. I don't have a license. You can't buy it from me. I can't sell it to you. I can never get paid if you buy life insurance. So don't come to me and ask me to help you get life insurance. I can't do it. I can give you a list of 50 uh, other more than that. (laughs) Lots of people who would be happy to help you acquire that life insurance, but, but you can't buy it from me. But let me talk to you about how we see highly successful people who make a lot of money and who plan for the retirement and use high cash value, low death benefit life insurance as an alternative to uh, other planning. And, and let me tell you right off the bat, one of the big things that's cool about this kind of planning is it doesn't have all the rules of IRAs. You don't have caps on how much you can put in. If the business owner does this, you, you are not compelled to include uh, your uh all your employees, your entire company uh, in the plan. You can do this just for yourself. You can do it personally and just you, only you. And so here's a couple of uh, technical details that we need to be clear on. Anytime you buy life insurance, whether it's a term policy or a cash value policy, and there's various different kinds of cash value policies, but I'm just going to speak of life insurance with cash value in it. No matter what kind of life insurance you purchase, there is a mortality cost. That's the cost, the actuarial cost of guaranteeing that in the event of your death, there's going to be cash available to pay your death benefit. And this is something that actuarials, which are really smart people who are very good at math, figure out, and they look at the law of large numbers. If you have a sufficiently large population, what's the probability that... Uh, so many people are going to die and they figure that out and we, we don't know when you're going to die but we know out of a million people how many people are going to die and we know pretty much when and, and so based upon that they can calculate actuarially how much money has to be set aside to guarantee that as people die the owners of these life insurance policies will get the death benefit that they purchased and that's a mortality charge a mortality cost and that's by the way highly regulated that's something that not only actuarials figure out, but but uh, state uh, insurance uh, commissions or agencies regulate this. And, and they make sure that the insurance companies set aside enough in reserves so that in the event that the people die, there's going to be money there to pay. So there's a cost. And that cost is unavoidable in any life insurance policy you have. It. So why do we want a low death benefit? And the answer is to keep that mortality cost down. So the cost of the policy is Low. Now, why do we want a high cash value? Well, here's another issue. Uh, with an insurance policy, there's a limit as to how much cash you can put into a policy. And that limit, it has a technical name. It's called a modified endowment contract limit. That's, a, that's the maximum amount of cash you can put in. And if you put in more than that, it changes the life insurance. It's no longer life insurance now. It's basically the equivalent of a new, an annuity and the income that spins out of that is gonna be taxable. So we wanna stay under that modified endowment contract limit or what's commonly called the MEC limit. We wanna stay below that. So if hypothetically a young person, the entrepreneur, the new professional, the architect, the physician, the CPA, the lawyer, the dentist, the doctor, whatever says, well, wow, I, I'm gonna suck away some money I'm going to put away after-tax dollars and they buy this low death benefit policy when they're young which keeps the cost the mortality costs down and they stuff that policy with the maximum amount of cash they can to keep it under that modified endowment contract limit over time that policy that cash inside the policy grows and there's a variety of ways it can be indexed it can be it can be uh, there's mutual companies that pay based on the profitability of the company. There's, there, it can be in the market with variable. There's lots of different ways, and I don't really, that's not material. Although when you're actually sitting down to do that, you want to speak with a life insurance professional uh, who can explain to you the difference of all those different kinds of cash value policies and help you pick the kind that's going to be most suitable for your particular goals. But in any event, the cash inside the policy, it grows, and that growth is, Is it tax deferred? No, it's tax free, tax free. And as you hit retirement age, if you need the cash, you can borrow it out of the life insurance policy. And that borrowing is, is it taxable? No, it's tax free. And if you don't need it, because as the entrepreneur or the professional, you've Uh, governed your life in such a manner that by the time you actually retire, you have other income-producing assets. So you never really need the money and you let it ride. And then it's there when you die. What happens to the death benefit when you die? It is, if it's properly structured, it goes to your beneficiaries, your family members. Tax deferred? No. Is it taxable? No. It's completely tax-free, which is a home run. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to say this, let me say it generically. I know professionals who work in this industry, who believe in this sufficiently, that they have no IRAs, they have no 401ks, none of that. What do they have? They have low death benefit, high cash value policies stuffed with cash. Some other cool things with those, by the way, if you run into rough times, if we have, uh, if you look Historically, at the uh, ups and downs of the economy in the U.S. history, in my professional lifetime, there have been several cycles where it's up, 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 and everybody, everybody's going, "Wow, everybody's getting rich, aren't you?" And then there's times when we get clobbered when everybody's losing all their money. And are we, are we about to have one of those periods of time? I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, but when you do have rough times, if you know, we have a pandemic of some sort and suddenly your income goes uh, uh, drops precipitously and you're, you're no longer able to contribute cash to that low death benefit, high cash value policy, it's okay. It, it, can, it can hold on, it, it can still be there and you can still enjoy the benefits later on. So I need to mention that for that to work and accomplish what you want it to accomplish, those life insurance policies have to be owned in a certain way and uh, in a simple because we're talking about estate planning here the simple and short answer is it has to be owned by a trust and the trust has to be structured in such a way as to have the correct and the proper kind of language and provisions so that that life insurance policy and the death benefits and the proceeds you receive from it are again not subject either to income tax or estate taxes One of the little known ambushes that happen with life insurance policies is if uh, they're uh, depending on the size of your estate your life insurance can actually be subject to an estate tax which is different than an income tax. Uh, Now uh, some people wonder because we've I've kind of lumped all the retirement accounts into the same thing I've been talking about IRAs or just retirement accounts generically is tax wise is there a significant difference between a traditional IRA and a 401k and the short answer is no they're basically the same uh uh, how they get funded is a little different the caps on contributions are a little different how they're managed is a little different there's some nuances in the technical rules but when it comes to i'm going to take the money out i'm going to withdraw the money it's basically the same deal (laughs) Any money coming out of a traditional IRA or a 401k is going to be taxed uh, at your uh, rate, whatever your rate is. So if you receive it again at retirement and your income has gone down because you're not working anymore, you're retired, in theory, you're gonna be at a lower rate. Uh, but if it you're still working, or if you have other income producing assets, it's going to come out at a higher rate. And here's one of the issues that, to be aware of with this. If you leave the traditional IRA or the traditional 401k to your beneficiaries and they're compelled to take it out in 10 years, they're going to be compelled to take it out and it's going to push them to higher rates. And by the way, there's some strategic planning on that. There's a, I've seen a lot of uh, uh, articles in the industry suggesting that If you have a traditional IRA and you've got this 10-year rule kicking in with a non-spousal beneficiary, you're actually better off if you let it ride, which you can. You can let it ride and take all of the income out at the very end of the 10th year. And the reason you let it ride is you get 10 more years of tax deferral, where presumably the market's going to be kind to you, your income's going to go up. Uh, you're gonna. it's going to grow during those 10 years. And then when you take it out all in year 10, are you going to be in a low bracket or a high bracket? Well, you're going to be in a high bracket. You're going to be in the highest bracket. But because you've enjoyed that 10 years of growth, even taking it out at the highest bracket, you're going to be net, net, net dollars ahead than you would otherwise be, according to people who who say this.
1: Hey, Rick, uh, Rick yeah. as I understand it, when when uh, people allow for their uh, withdrawals to go through the conduit trust or to go through the accumulation or to stay in the accumulation trust, uh, isn't there a language that can prevent them from being able to actually get to those funds until that those 10 years have passed? I think I, I've, I've read something on if, if it's limited to uh, being able to cash out RMDs only or you're, you're limited to withdrawing RMDs only uh, under the SECURE Act, uh, as I understand it, They, if you have that kind of language in your trust, then you are prevented from being able to withdraw those, the, whatever the amount is from the fund until the 10 years have passed. Is there any warning or, or anything like that that you would talk about? With-
0: so This is the principle. I like to identify the principle that guides the planning. Here's the, here's the concept. The provisions of your trust, what your trust says, will have an impact on what you can do with the IRA. When you take it out, when you have to take it out, so it is important that we that the trust is structured in such a way that you get what you want, or at least you get the best available option. You may not get what you want. What you want is tax-free money, and that's not one of your available options. But you want to get the best of the available options. And sometimes, uh, here's another principle. Sometimes we don't, we can't predict today what's going to be best in the future when somebody dies. Uh, so a planning principle that I favor is, we it's good to give future beneficiaries and trustees choices. We build in tools so that they can go one way or another way depending upon the needs and the circumstances uh, applicable at that given moment, which is one of the reasons why I favor the hybrid trust with switches based upon discretion so that we can plan at when we're dealing now with this non-spousal beneficiary and the funds are coming into a trust. And the, and the question becomes: well, what do we want the trust to say? What's going to give us the optimum benefits at this time? And and I think the the best planning will have a more than one option available and the capacity to choose whichever option best suits the needs of the parties at that time.
1: And if you don't have that planning at this point or you don't have provisions in your trust that allow for that kind of flexibility, at what point is it too late to be able to, to amend it or to, to make the changes that you're talking about?
0: Great question. Here's the deal. Revocable trust, in general, can only be revoked while you're alive. Once you're dead, game over. You can't change it. Death is irrevocable, at least for tax purposes. Uh, If if you want to talk about that uh, for spiritual purposes, that's another conversation. But but at least for tax purposes, death is irrevocable, and your trust becomes irrevocable when you die. Now, a well-crafted trust may have other tools in it that can allow for provisions to be modified. So for example, and this is kind of an advanced estate planning topic, but a trust can have something called a trust protector. And sometimes that protector if, if in a well-crafted trust will have the ability to fine tune the provisions of the trust to comply with whatever the rules are. One, one of the hazards we have to address, and this is a real challenge, because estate planners, people who do what I do for a living, we're trying to guess. Well, what's the best rule for my client in this situation? What's the best thing? What can we do? And and we're not. And it's important to recognize what rules count. The rules that count are the rules that are in place when they die. Well, what are those rules? Well, we don't know. We, we don't. We, we don't. We're we're shooting in the dark because. Once again, what's the what are the, what's the probability that the politicians are going to change the rules? 100%. They're going to change. We know that whatever the rules are now, the rules are going to be different at some point in the future. And we just don't know when. So uh, that's another reason why it's appropriate, instead of trying to guess, ah, I think that this is the best rule. This is the rule that's going to be best for you because – this is when you're going to die. And these are the rules that are going to be in place when you die. And this is how much money you're going to have when you die. And this is what's going to be going on in the lives of your children when you die. I, I find that's just ridiculously impossible to predict. I can't predict it. I don't know what the rules are going to be. I don't know when you're going to die. I don't know what's going to be going on in your family when you die. I don't know what's going to be going on with your finances when you when you die. So, again, it just is a planning philosophy, the principle. And, Mike, you know, we're, we're – we practice this in our firm. We we load the trust up with tools. We give the benefic- future beneficiaries and trustees all the tools that we are aware of. And as we become aware of more of them, sometimes we read a trust. We go, "Oh, that's a clever tool. That's cool. Let's let's put that tool on our trust." And one of the consequences of that is our trust has become long and complicated. And sorry, that's just how it is. But but the benefit is. Well, down the road when that unpredictable thing happens, we didn't think the politicians were gonna do that. I didn't think that was gonna happen to my children. I didn't think my finances were gonna do that. Well, do we have a tool to address that? Hey, we do. Let's pull the tool out, we use it. So by building in multiple tools, by building in flexibility, adaptive adaptability, uh, that trust protect, I cannot overemphasize the importance of that. More than once, and, and this is something we've encountered more than once already. Because I've been doing this long enough. Guess what? I have clients that are passing away. And we get down to it and go, wow. uh, Yeah, we should have updated your trust 20 years ago. In fact, I've told you three times to update it. And you said, no, don't do it because you didn't want to pay me. And now you're dead. And now there's some nasty language in your trust that was good 20 years ago, but it's not good today. But never fear. We built in some adaptability. We have a trust protector. And with the consent of your children, we can now fine tune the provisions of the trust, even though you're dead, to comply with the new rules that we we couldn't have possibly guessed 20 years ago. So here's the principle again. Number one, uh, what your trust says is going to impact what you can do or not do with your IRA, with your retirement plan, number one. Number two, having choices is always better than not having choices. And we can't guess today what it's going to be in the future so the most effective thing we can do is plan to give you lots of tools and lots of options and the ability to adapt to use whatever makes the most sense so great questions by the way did you have other questions mike i know that other people have been streaming questions in here and we've been answering a lot of those as we go uh i kind of want to give an overview here we've talked about Retirement accounts, when they should be funded, who should fund them. You know, It's different if you're an employee versus the owner of the business or a professional. We've talked about uh, how money goes in. We've talked about how money comes out, when it's compelled to come out, when you may take it out. We've talked about who should be beneficiaries, who should get the money, who's the best person to get the money, you. Take your money while you're alive. Take it quit whining about it, quit complaining about the taxes, take it, pay the taxes, go buy more ice cream or take a cruise or do something fun once you can do that again. We've talked about uh, what happens to uh, the funds when you die, what are the rules uh, and how best to structure that to uh, keep those benefits in your family. We've talked about some alternatives to uh, traditional uh, retirement planning that can be tremendously beneficial for the right person and we've talked about trusts and what works and what doesn't work and the difference between conduit and accumulation trust. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, one of the things I want to emphasize is if you have a trust uh, and it's old, odds are, even if it was the most brilliant trust, even if it was one of my trusts and it's sufficiently old, it's there's a high probability that the provisions in it relating to retirement accounts are obsolete, that they need to be updated. So one of the things we offer everyone is we will review your trust for free. And candidly, uh, not everybody that we review their trust becomes our client. Some people, we, re- we review their trust and say, here's what it does. Well, here's what it doesn't do to your care. And they go, ah, I'm cool. I'm fine. Or, gee, thank you for your review. And I'm going to go back to whoever set this up and have them uh, implement all the suggestions you just gave me, which is fine. We will review those trusts for free. If you don't have a trust and you have a retirement account, and you're not going to withdraw it during your lifetime, get a trust. Whether it's with us or someone else, come on. This is like uh, riding a motorcycle without a helmet or I don't know, brushing your teeth. It's it's just something that responsible human beings do because it's responsible. It's you, do you allow your your little children to ride in the back of your pickup truck as you go careening down the freeway at 70 miles an hour? No, that would be crazy stupid. So. Why would you treat your money any differently? Uh, take care of your money, be a good steward, and plan for it, and then it will last you and it will last you during your retirement. This has been a fun uh, uh, program. We've enjoyed doing this today. I hope it's beneficial for you. Uh, we do these regularly. Come to our websites, uh, any one of those that you see flashing along the bottom of there. We have a lot of material, a lot of uh, follow through material. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at the phone number you see on the screen there. We'd love to visit with you. Consultations, the first consultation is free. If we can help you, we'll help you. If we can't help you, we'll tell you. And that's all today. So it's been a pleasure to work with you and signing off.
1: Thanks, everybody.